the, our culture became less word-based, book-based, gradually more image-based, more symbol-based. Nobody denies that America is in a political crisis a great deal because of the nature of politics that can be practiced now that are mostly symbolic. We try to upstage each other by deploying symbols. That's actually where I come from. That's what we do. We're symbolic people. This is why it's becoming increasingly difficult to try to use people with arguments or facts. The status of argument, facts, and books are declining, and people now are more uh, receptive to vague symbolisms that immediately feed on their most intimate emotions, whether fear or hate or this or that and capitalize on them and, and get action out of that. And this is not to be an alarmist. I'm afraid that the rising anti-Semitism and the shift in terms of uh, attitude towards Israel, not in the entire population, but in, in some considerable segments, uh, are going to continue if the cultural processes that I just spoke about are, are going to continue as well. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Welcome back everyone to See One Beautiful Soul. I'm so honored to have my guest today, Hussein Abubakar. You can pick up his book on Amazon called Minority of One. With anti-Semitism rising, Throughout the world, I thought this was really an important episode to highlight just a few of the fundamental differences in beliefs about Jewish history, Palestinian history, Islam, and Judaism. Hussein and I have an open, respectful, loving, and kind conversation about what's happening in that region in the Middle East and what we can do about it wherever we are in the world. We tackle the age-old question, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? or anti-Judaism, and it's quite fascinating to hear what Hussein has to say about that. If you're moved, touched, inspired, or enlightened by any portion of this episode, please share it with somebody that you care about. I am starting a brand new monthly membership program called Speak My Magic. You can find out more about it at speakmymagic.com. Share your stories, create some content in different forms, and heal and transform yourself and the world around you. Without further ado, here is my guest, Hussein. Hi, Hussein. Welcome to See One Beautiful Soul. You are a beautiful soul. Yes. Thank you, Barbara. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. You work with Jewish organizations. What is your mission in life? Yes, I, I work as an educator. I help educating uh, young students about the Middle East, specifically about anti-Semitism um, in the Middle East and anti-Semitism in, in general. Um, I'm very passionate about uh, the issue of, of anti-Semitism, just trying to uh, understand it, which is quite difficult uh, historically and in every other dimension, and trying to effectively combat it, whether it was in the United States and other countries or um, in the Middle East. And I think the very first step to do so is to bring it into the uh, vision and the purview of people, because I think a lot of people are completely uh, oblivious to to it. Great. And so, where did you grow up? I grew up in Cairo, in in Egypt, actually. All my people originally come from there, so it's it's interesting to. I mean, that's where the Jewish people were actually formed. Uh, you know, Moses 
Ten Commandments, that whole thing. And, you know, we escaped Egypt to uh, go into the desert and 20, only 20% of us left Egypt. 80% really liked it there, I guess, even yeah. in slavery. <laughs> that's pretty good PR. You'll, you'll never want to leave, even if you're enslaved. Um, that's my comedy. I don't mean to, to make light of it, but uh, it sounds like a pretty place. I've never been there. But. It's, a, it's a pretty place. It's a, you know, it's a valley of life. Uh, in the middle of a uh, very stark uh, desert on, on both sides. And I think that makes Egypt uh, a very special of very special geographic uh, features and that I think it has a, also it gives a, or puts an imprint on the uh, cogn- cognitive landscape of the people who live there. It kind of makes you live in an, in an island, self-contained island. And you grew up Muslim. Are both your parents Muslim? Yeah, I grew up in a in a traditional Arab Muslim family. Uh, no connection to the outside world uh, world whatsoever. Wow! And what take us to how you get from Cairo, growing up a fully one hundred percent Muslim Arab, to now I help a Jewish organization educate people on uh, anti semitism. And also maybe lies that are in the media and propaganda against Jewish people. Like, how does that happen? Take us there. Uh, it's actually due to the fact that I have a personal firsthand experience with anti-Semitism that uh, I can do this. Uh, I grew up in, in anti-Semitism. Um, unfortunately, Egypt and so many other societies in the Middle East and outside of the Middle East um, is saturated with un- anti-Semitism um, unfortunately, in every venue of the culture. Um, and I grew up not even aware of its existence. It's in the air that you that you breathe. Um, uh, a very basic level of knowledge, you know, the sun comes out of the east, the earth is round, hopefully, not always, uh, and the Jews are evil. And I heard that in, you know, in all of the primary um, uh kinds of education that you receive as a young person in what sociologists call socialization, right? You're born into a society and then you get socialized by your parents, various social institutions, uh, whether mosques, churches, schools, watching cartoons on the TV. Uh, This kind of gives you um, the foundation of the rest of your life, who you are, uh, your mother language, and all of that. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism was a... um, a, a fundamental part of that, whether the religious education, the national identity, uh, the Jews are evil, um, Israel is the embodiment of, of Jewish villainy, it's your enemy. Um, and that was kind of just the, the basics. All the movies, I remember when I was a child, all the movies and the TV shows that I loved and so many other people had Jewish villains. The best Egyptian movies, the best um, Egyptian TV shows, whether it was about you know, an espionage thriller or even about crime. It was a Jewish conspiracy at the end of, of all of those. Um, and for the mind of a child, it's a, it's fascinating. A lot of people really underestimate um, anti-Semitism as, as um, a, an extremely powerful narrative and, and extremely powerful story. Uh, because f- especially for a child, it's like you're living in Lord of the Rings. I'm telling you, you know, there are um, evil people. There are orcs and, and trolls uh, who are evil and wicked, and you can become a superhero. 
Um, and it was absolutely fascinating. And I was a nerd. I am, I am still a nerd to a large extent. Um, and, You're in good uh, company. Me too. <laughs> and uh, I found as all nerds, you know, we love stories. We love mythologies. We try to look for the meaning behind them. And I was really fascinated by all of these stories. Um, and this escalated uh, significantly following the the 9-11 period. So you had the early 2000 years were quite consequential, I believe, in Middle Eastern and global history uh, because there was a huge wave of radicalization following 9-11, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and then the second intifada. So you open the TV every day and you have all of this news um, and uh, the religious feelings were inflamed and I really got into it. I hated Jews. I hated Israel. All right. You know, what now? What can I do? And I was a young teenager at the time. I was going to mosque five times a day. I was, uh, you know, a, a very committed Salafist, which is a kind of, uh, you know, ultra-Orthodox Muslims, uh, so to speak. Even my family were not like that. You know, my family is just like the normal kind of conservative mosque on Friday uh, people. And uh, I really wanted to do something about it. And I went online and I started researching as much as I could. I taught myself Hebrew um, and English. And um, that led me on a very long educational journey uh, that I would say that it's still going on um, that eventually completely transformed the way I think about literally without exaggeration, everything whether myself, the world, um, you know, the Jewish people, uh, history, culture, um, humanity. Uh, and uh, that led me to take very different positions and be aware of that thing called anti-Semitism and its absolutely destructive potential in the lives of individuals, uh, societies, nations. Uh, and this is why I, I, uh, I do what I do. Okay, thank you. I already have tears like pouring out of my eyes. Uh, and I think the reason is because I lived in the Middle East. Um, I've always uh, supported Palestinians since I was little. Uh, I grew up very secular and it was only when I was 24, even after visiting the Holocaust sites and after 9-11, I kind of started to think about well, what are my values and why am I so against Israel just because I stand up for Palestinians, is there a way we could work together? Because, you know, we have narratives on our side too. I've never heard in my entire life as far, I hate to make right or left, like, you know, as far as left leaning or liberal, and it's sad that that has to mean if I'm liberal that I'm for Palestinian values. That's how I thought it had to be. Um, growing up, you know, if I was for Palestinians and I wasn't for Israel, that's really what I was taught to believe. Um, by more secular Jews and well, well-meaning, you know, and, uh, and I, I remember when I first went to Israel, I went with the World Zionist Organization, not the Zionist Organization of America, the World Zionist Organization. And it was kind of like, by the end of it, I was like, why don't we just give the land back? Because clearly we're colonizers and, you know, it's a, even in the state of Israel, standing on the land, I was led by people who didn't really know the history or if they knew it, it was a very watered down, not passionate you know, talk about it. And I was like, it's fun to see Hebrew on, on walls and stores like Kentucky fried chicken, like spelled in Hebrew, but like, who cares? Like, it's kind of dumb. I, I don't know. I just, 
it was like a pretty kind of dirty place. You know, I went in the nineties. Um, and I remember just thinking, I was like a kid, but I was thinking like, this is kind of a dumb thing. And I, I remember at 24 walking around historical sites, I could cry just thinking about it with uh, one of my rabbis, Rev. Benny Friedman, who served as a commando in the army. And sorry, he took us to the Lebanon border and he talked about how when the IDF was in Lebanon, there was not one account of rape. And I thought to myself, at first, because I was very skeptical, why on earth are we applauding that? Of course, there should not be one account of rape, because that's what everyone should be like. Yeah. And it was only later when I studied like American Army, uh, Navy, all the things that are going on, even within our own country, America, and how much rape there is and how much rape on the other sides. Right. It was like a miracle, you know, not that, again, you shouldn't be lauded for not raping a stranger in wartime. Yeah. But it, when he was uh, with snipers in the IDF and how they went door to door and asked them to roll up their carpets. And he said, I want you to hear every detail that we have to go through when we're looking for and searching for Hamas leadership. It's not like we just go to someone's house and take out a gun and, brrr, you know, most armies would do that. We literally knock on the door and he like, he went through painful details and it was like, and I, and I believe him. I trust him that he's yeah. telling me the truth. Cause I had dinner with his family. Like I know him so well. And I remember just, I kept crying because it was like, I couldn't believe that I had been sort of hoaxed for such a long, I mean, I'm tw I was 24. It was like, not that long, I guess, two and a half decades, but I really believe that something was wrong with Israel and the army. And I, I know they're not perfect. And I know Bibi Netanyahu is not perfect. And I'm not saying, this is not a podcast about politics and this side is right. I'm talking about fundamental ideals. And yeah. then I started to learn about the ideology behind Israel and how long we have lived in the land. And I thought when it was called Palestine, it was only belonging yeah. to the Arabs. And so how dare we, you know, ask for any part of it back? It was theirs. And then when yeah. I started learning it from the beginning and like Noah, Abraham, and then Moshe and all the timelines, it just, it's seeing actual historical evidence of synagogue where the Ari had a mikvah in Sfat and how many, like just thousands of years of like Jewish history and we're standing on it and we're like touching the land. And I remember hearing about how the mosque, Alaska mosque, which today belongs to the Palestinians. It's the holiest Jewish land in the world. And it, right now it's a mosque. It was a garbage dump. They used it as a garbage dump for a while. We All we want is to have like our temple back, right? Cause it's like the holiest Jewish site. We have a decrepit wall called the Willing Wall. It's like literally half, you know, half a wall from this biblical time. Everything started to unravel. And it was like, once you lifted that veil of like Jewish history, forget even the religious part of it that's in the Bible right. and, the to and the Christian Bible and the Quran, forget that part. It's like, just history, like carbon dated history. Right. You can't compare it. It's, it's, it's like one's a, one's a really cute story narrative. That's kind of scary. And the other one is like just boring facts. And when I started to learn that in a, in accordance with my own finding my spirituality, I thought to myself, okay, so if someone is born in Cairo or Saudi Arabia 
or Pakistan, and they they learn their beautiful narrative and their call to worship along yeah. with who knows what botched up part of history. And they're in squalor and they're struggling to survive. Of course, they're going to naturally be anti-Semitic. Why wouldn't right. they? I know a lot of my listeners are going to say, yeah, but if he's Muslim, how does he reconcile the Quran with real Jewish history as opposed to the fake Jewish history? And, and that's my first question to you. And then if you could, I want to get more into the fundamental belief of radical Islam, because I think it's something that people are really afraid to look at because yeah. it's scary. It's scary even for radical Islamists to look at, right? So why wouldn't it all the more so someone who doesn't know? And we just kind of turn our head and say, this doesn't have to do with me. Even I, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't even want. It. So right. those two questions, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear. Uh, for the first question, I, I really don't try to reconcile. I try to understand things um, as they are. If the Quran says something that um, I know doesn't make sense, given our historical facts, then I try to understand, okay, why did the Quran um, say that? Um, and I think my own beliefs have shifted greatly, uh, significantly away from Islamic orthodoxy or Muslim orthodoxy. Um, and that's <clears throat> that's for certain. And that's a big part, I think, of the puzzle uh, that I don't know how it is um, ever going to be resolved because uh, I think it would be wise to understand we do have a fundamental disagreement uh, about uh, very uh, basic facts about history, how history happened. Like Ishmael switching places with Isaac to be very... Like, uh, you know, that, that's also it. But what, was Moses a Jew or was he a Muslim? I think that's a that's a very profound disagreement uh, about how you see um, how you see history. I mean, even the story of Isaac and and, and uh, Ishmael. I think yes, it's a disagreement about uh, you know a very important story that's central to um, all major religions. Uh, but I think it, it has to do with the claim of truth. You know, what is the moral truth? Is it in Judaism or Islam? And I think religions, we may permit religions to disagree on that. All right, you know. Uh, but I think when you talk about fundamental historical facts about, well, what what was the true confessional identities of people like Solomon, uh, of people like Jesus? Uh, I, think, I think then we run into um, a disagreement that really transcends mere theological boundaries, because this has uh, uh, implications to the way that people understand uh, history, and it affects their own uh, political sensibilities, their own social sensibilities. Um, and I think that's a very profound problem uh, that I, I, I don't know if there is an answer to. I do see, you know, religious people are clever. You can, may have clever Muslim theologians, who are able to, to do this, but so far this has not been happening um, for various various reasons. Um, but I don't think that we necessarily have to, like still, even with those profound disagreements, I, I don't think the ultimate should be this zero-sum clash that we've been going through for a very long time. And uh, I think the United Arab Emirates showed, showed that clearly. Um, that um, a, even a traditional Muslim society 
um, is able to use the tradition really in, a, in very different unexpected moves. Uh, after all, their peace treaty and normalization agreement with Israel was actually titled the Abrahamic Accords, and they did that on purpose uh, in order to kind of take that religious and traditional symbolism instead of investing it in violence, you know what, let's actually invest it in peace, which is um, absolutely brilliant and, and noble and courageous um, on their part. Okay, like my timeline, very simply, I wish I had a spreadsheet, but right now, but anyway, um, is that from like, it, right now the Jewish year is 5781. So what's the year according to Islam? It's a 15th century. I don't know the exact date. Egyptians uh, have lost that calendar a long time ago. So it's yeah, 14, 15, 14 something. 14 something. Perfect. Okay. okay. So 5,781 years ago, give or take, we had the first, um, I'm just giving a very short brief. I used to teach Hebrew school for 20. From zero, the year zero, I took a class with um, a Nobel Prize winner um, named, named Dr. Gerald Schroeder, who's a physicist who was able to make a little proof that like the first six days of creation for seven days, if you don't include Shabbat, which is timeless, uh, we're not really sure if one day was actually millennia, we don't know. But there were 40,000 generations of humanoids after the Big Bang, which is totally, you know, supported. Science and Darwinism are totally supported by the Torah, the one that I study. Um, dinosaur, all that stuff was in that first six days, millennia period, we don't know. And there were 40,000 generations of humanoids. We don't know how long each generation was, but there was a human without a soul. And then after that, there was uh, sort of like a, a destruction and, and God created like Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. And they were the first humans created with uh, a soul, uh, not a nephesh, an animal soul, but also an animal soul plus a human soul that has like, I can tell the difference between right and wrong. And when I speak, I can actually make shades of meaning. Like when I look at you and I say, I hear you. I'm not just saying I'm listening to you, Hussein. I, f I feel what you're saying in my, my heart. And you feel that when you talk to people as opposed to two animals that might feel things, but you don't know what they're really feeling, right? Okay. So then after Adam and Hava, you have a thousand years between them and Noah, Noah and the ark. And then from, you know, another thousand, you know, give or take to Abraham and Abraham's the first, the father of all nations, Avraham, right? And, you know, sprinkles uh, some wisdom in the East and we get Buddhism and Hinduism, all that stuff kind of, you know, from his travels out there. But he was like the first enlightened one that believed in a oneness. And he kind of gave that to everybody or made them think about it, whatever. And he and his wife, Sarah, like they were able to kind of get people to start to think there is one force that we should be listening to. And there's a morality and we should start thinking about law, but only between Abraham and Moshe, there was no real laws, but people lived by sort of this like unwritten code of like, don't kill, don't steal, like no adultery, all that stuff. And by the time Moshe, Moses had the slaves, uh, Jews were there for 210 years. We finally earned the Torah, which was already pre-written. It was sort of like the screenplay. My, my friend David Sachs has also been on the podcast, says that it was written and then the world came into being. And so then we get this whole story, this history book in the desert, and we get the 10 commandments, but really 613 commandments. We get a calendar and the calendar starts in like 3,500 of the 5,781, you see, because zero to 3,500, 3,500 was like Moshe time. And then now we're 2,000 years later, give or take, it's 5,781. And what I know is that 
1400 years after Moshe, we have Jesus who roams the earth. And then 750 years after that, we have Muhammad. So in my head, you know, and by the way, right after Moses leaves the planet, physically, we have, we get into the land of Israel uh, from Joshua. However, there were many times along the way, Abraham and other times where it was Canaan, it was still Israel. So we were always in and out of that land. We're talking about like thousands of years. We're like in and out of the land. So when I hear someone say, like I, I texted you, you know, it makes me nervous just to think about it. This kind of diatribe that's been going around. This is what the man said to me, a very sweet Muslim man. I talk to Muslims all the time because I always want to make peace. It's, I'm always like, salam, let's talk. How do you feel? What's your fundamental belief system? Let's get into it. Not in a, what's your belief system? And I'm going to fight you. It's more like, I just want to seek to understand Stephen yeah. Covey, you know, and he, um, he said, well, just so you know, this is what I believe because this has been going around the Muslim world for a long time. And within it, it's, it's just like a rewritten history. It's like, you know, the Jews only had Israel for about two centuries. It's not really their land. It's a genocide. They don't deserve yeah. it. It's like, Oh my gosh. So they literally took what I just told you and kind of like create. So I'm saying, how do you, when you looked at it, you said to me, uh, in not so many words, this is not really worth a conversation with this person because it's part of their religious belief system. You're not going to change it. And I said, why not? Like, I'm like Anne Frank. Anne Frank wrote in her diary before she was taken to the gas chambers by the Nazis. I really believe that all people are, are good deep down. Right. And I believe that. I believe every terrorist that flew into the World Trade Center could have changed before they did it. That's why I have this podcast. I believe that every KKK person right. that wants to kill a, a black person could change. It's not, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. So I want, I'm asking you, number one, <laughs> why do you feel differently about that history that's going around yeah. the Muslim world right now? And number two, why, why should we not try to change it? It's it's not that it's not that we shouldn't try to change it. I just I said, or I think we should explore other ways that, to change it because um, it's not that I don't believe in in challenging false information, but I will give I will give an example. So uh, Muslims, uh, as as a matter of doctrinal commitment, uh, don't believe in the crucifixion story. That's that's a matter of a doctrinal commitment to believe that the crucifixion never actually happened. So the crucifixion it's not a matter of, of Jesus. Yeah, okay. and this is consequential theologically. Um, so it's a doctrinal commitment to believe that the crucifixion never happened. Yet, and and here is something that I want to draw your your attention to: the Palestinians will systematically use the icons of Jesus being brought down, brought down from the cross and his mother Mary carrying him in order to kind of personify their own, you know, tragedy or struggle, whatever, to the West and make it relatable. Like, this is what happened to us. We're being crucified again. Uh, this is quite ironic because they don't believe that Jesus was ever crucified to begin with, right? Um, and here is pure opportunism. I'm, I'm sorry to say we're talking about something that does not have any real principle behind it. It's that it's trying to strategically finding any tools to prove that I am right and you are wrong. And this is why I said this is not worth engaging with because this is not, it doesn't have substance and it doesn't matter that it doesn't have substance. Uh, it doesn't really stand on a principle except I, <laughs> me, me, me. I am right. I am right. 
Um, and this is, I was uh, watching the other day a video of uh, Rassan Kanfani, an interview in English. You can find it on YouTube. And I don't know if uh, our, our listeners are familiar with Rassan Kanfani. He's, he's a major Palestinian figure. He was a novelist and a poet and an author. He was also a major figure in the PFLP, a major terrorist organization. Uh, he, he, he has blood in his hands, but he was also, you know, a, a good writer and he became kind of the resistance, uh, author. He's very known in academia in the West. He's considered to be one of the main figures of what they call resistance literature. Some of the, uh, you know, academic, Western academic neurotic, uh, stupidities. Uh, but anyways, I was watching the interview and it was done with him in Beirut. I think it's uh, maybe in the late 60s. And you have posters of Marx, Lenin, Mao. Uh, and he was speaking in a thoroughly, you know, the third world liberationist language of, uh, you know, atheist, communist, national liberationist uh, worldview. Uh, and he had like the big mustache of the time. And then I was watching this. I was like, oh, wow, what what changed? Uh, we took down the pictures of Lenin and Marx and Mao. And instead, we put the images of imams and Islamic icons and uh, we kept the mustache. But we grew a beard. And instead of making claims based on, you know, uh, Marxist ideology, we're making claims based on Islam. So what is the constant and what's the ephemera? <laughs> The constant is a claim. Uh, I want this. This is mine. Whether I'm going to use atheist communism or pious Islam, I'm getting this. Uh, and this is why when I, when I saw that what you sent to me, I was like, okay, this is one of those things. It really doesn't matter if we show like, hey, this is all wrong. The person's going to go and going to find something else and, and bring it, which is, I'm not saying not to do this process, but we have to understand that there is much more in terms of an inner commitment to some values and principles that are disinterested, impersonal, uh, they don't, they are not your principles. They are not my principles. They are just the principles. Uh, and this is why this is a, a, a that big issue. Um, in terms of Islamic history, the, the truth is, so the Quran, the Quran as a book, um, it's not really a book. I mean, there is a huge confusion, and I think this is why Islam and Judaism, Christianity on the other side, despite that they have a family resemblance, they will always remain in, incommunicable. You can't really communicate between them. Uh, the Quran is not really a book, the way that the Bible is a book. The Quran is a speech. Uh, it's meant to be an auditory phenomena, primarily. Um, it's Think about it as a collection of sermons. It's not really, it's not some literary work that has a structure of a beginning, a middle, an end, a chronological line that explains to you history and stories. Think about it literally as a collection of sermons. So the stories of Moses, Jesus, all of this. First of all, not all the biblical stories are there, but only the ones that are mentioned in sermons. What are the stories that Christians and Jews use all the time in, in, in the sermons. They use the big ones, the ones that everybody loves, you know, Joseph, Moses, uh, Abraham, you know, Solomon, David. Uh, so these are the only stories really that exist in the Quran, and they don't exist for a historical purpose. They exist as part of sermons um, about the different messages that the Quran tried to convey. 
what is understood to be the history from a Muslim perspective was really written extremely recently, I would say, not really earlier than a century ago. Um, and it was written by um, Arab nationalists primarily who were ideologically committed to an Arab, an Arabized form of what is known as a German ideology. Uh, and the German ideology, that's a 19th century uh, uh, invention, basically that German nationalism came out, the idea of the German nation and all forms of nationalism um, at least in Europe and most of the world, maybe not in North America, really came out of those ideas. So uh, Arab nationalism was that German ideology. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, those authors of Arab nationalism, they wrote that we copied this from, from Germans. Um, and in it, you have the idea of this narcissistic self-image of the eternal nation that has mission in history, that is the march of God in history, uh, and this is literally the language in which Arab nationalism, and that demanded a historical backing. So uh, Arab intellectual or uh, Arab nationalist intellectual engaged in a process of writing a history for that Arab nation. And then it wasn't starting from Muhammad, by the way, which is considered to be historically kind of the start of any um, uh, literary uh, history or written history of the Arab people. Uh, it actually starts from thousands of years ago when the Arabs lived everywhere, the Canaanites were Arab. A lot of historical fiction that is uh, that is uh, known by scholars here when they examine their, what's written there, oh, this is fiction, this is not real. Um, and this kind of remain, if you go pick up a textbook, an academic book, a graduate student book from the Middle East, Amman, Cairo, whatever, this is what you're going to find. Uh, now, this is, of course, given some um, extremely diff difficult to deal with the human behaviors that are universal, not Muslim or Arab, uh, makes it extremely tough. And one of them, I think the first one, is that the vast majority of people are born and they have a no sense of history and they think that human life started with, the, with, with themselves. Um, and that is true here in America. I've seen it here. I've seen it everywhere. And Arabs are not an exception. They are people. The vast majority of Arabs, you get born... For them, this is where humanity starts. If everything that is exists now, that must have existed everywhere. Uh, and the second, this is also, that's a bigger problem because even people who you think were smart also uh, do this. I mean, I'm talking about major names of philosophy even made these mistakes, which is confusing what's normative with what's natural. Uh, that is confusing the laws of uh, or like identities of who we are with the laws of physics, that the fact that this exists, that must be some sort of a, an inalienable part of the natural world. Um, and that's, another, so you have all of these, those two, I mean, there are many more, those are human problems. Uh, and then you get somebody who's born in a, in a certain story that happened to be very problematic. Those problems make it extremely difficult to change. And this is, this is a problem in the Middle East. I mean, I've, I've spent all my life, I mean, I'm 32 now, uh, since I was a teenager, I've been relentlessly, you know, educating myself on all of these things to know, right, where does this come from? All right, Palestine is the cause of the Arabs. This is not natural. Somebody had to say it first. Who's the first person to ever come up with the saying? And I tried to trace everything. Okay, the Arab nation, who's the first person thought of the idea of the Arab nation? The vast majority of people don't do this. 
all of my Arab friends, none of them even understand or willing to spend time. Because as I said, this is not specifically to Arabs. Most people really don't, can't afford the either unable or unwilling uh, to do that very hard work. Why would you want to spend time refuting yeah. your own fundamental beliefs when it's so close to your heart? I don't think you have to be a jihadist to say, um, we want Islam to take over the world. Bill Maher and Ben Affleck and Sam Harris were in the, this big argument. I go back to it all the time because I was so impressed that they yeah. were able to have this very uh, open conversation about the 1.5 billion Muslims that are in the world. And they said, it's not a small number that is jihad. I want to believe it's like 10 people, <laughs> you know? And really, if you think about it, it's probably just 10 people that are really nasty, that are trying right. to own the control of what people believe right but out of the 1.5 billion i'm not sure i don't actually care the number i mean even even 10 is too many but right. if, if there's let's say even 15 percent of that 1.5 billion that really want jews americans christians dead right. or to convert fundamentalist muslim belief that's a lot of people right now you have another group of that 1.5 billion that just support those people with their head down. They might not like, you know, share it publicly or online, yeah. but they're like, I pray five times a day and I kind of want those people to win right. in their own way. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fly into the world trade center, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to yeah. support them silently. Right. Right. Then you have right. like a group of Muslims that are like very peaceful, like, no, nah, that'll never happen. Right. Those are the people I'm the most concerned with. And I hope listen to this because if they could be inspired by you to say, wait a second, yeah. that ideology is Mein Kampf, right? Like the modern day German Mein right. Kampf, which, you know, Hitler wrote while he was in jail. Right. And then the book was published and it sat on the bookshelves for a while right. before he was elected by millions of people, not 10 people. He was elected by many, many, many Germans that just thought to themselves, right. the Jews must be the evil. And there's so many more of us. Let's just get rid of them. And they really meant well, right. I guess. They just stopped critically thinking. And the ones, as he was rising to power, who said he'll never get elected, he's crazy. Right. Those are the people that right now I feel I could liken to people on my Instagram or Facebook that might say, I support Black Lives Matter and Hamas. Right. And when I question them and say, do you realize that Hamas is a, is a terrorist organization that kills its own people? Right. They say, you don't understand the situation. They had no choice but to elect Hamas because Israel is so evil. And I want to just like, I have like sweat that comes out of my body and I just want to die because I'm like, oh my God, how many people, well-meaning, within that 1.5 billion plus Americans, Christians, Buddhists, all over the world that just are so swayed. I don't want to side with the ones within that movement, the movement of BLM that agree with Hamas, because guess what? I'm not just looking out for Jews. I care about LGBTs, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim friends that are identify as gay, and I want them to be able to live. I also just want people to be able to practice freedom of religion. So I, I can't say those things and also agree with Hamas. And when I see my LGBT friends hold a sign that says I'm LGBT and I stand for Hamas as well, I just, it's like my, I want to rip the hair out of my head. And then I have Muslim friends who will write to me and they're like, 
you know, I know you really care about Israel, but like, you got to stop. To me, standing up for Israel is standing up for democracy. It is standing up for not just Judaism, but we can all coexist. That's how I look at Israel. And again, I'm not supporting everything that Bibi has said or done. I'm not supporting, you know, uh, uh, an IDF soldier that accidentally killed, uh, you know, or forcefully killed a a Muslim and, and didn't think about it first because we have those here in America too, right? We have the George Floyds and all that. I'm not saying that when I say that, but I am saying that as a whole, I stand up for Israel. You asked at the beginning, very beginning, why would you take the time to refute your own fundamental beliefs? Um, those are really good questions because most people don't do that. Um, and here we actually start going into faith, religion, territory, uh, because this will only happen if you if we agree as a matter of faith and maybe some objective observation, but it's going to be a matter of fundamental faith that there is such a criteria as our criterion as truth. There is truth. Um, We might not know it. We may profoundly disagree on what that truth is, but that truth exists and it's impersonal. Uh, That's step number one. You can't get anything else done. Once you believe, okay, there is truth and that truth is impersonal. It's not special for me or anybody. Um, then you can, you know, theoretically think, all right, I need to know if what I think is really close to that truth or not, or maps out on it or not, or true or not. And you'll not try to examine any beliefs if you don't believe that. No, there is, there are things that are true and things that are not true. And truth is naturally exclusive. It can't really include everything. Um, that's number one. And, you know, emet, uh, that, that great, amazing um, Hebrew word and, and Jewish concept. Um, then number two, and that's where most of the people who even believe in truth break down, is that the only way to really try to get to that truth is absolute dedication, uh, passionate, disinterested, self-submission to learning. You just Submit yourself to learning, asking, learning, asking, learning, asking. That is very difficult to do for many reasons. Some of them are have to do with material, you know, considerations, money and time. And some of them just has to do with just how difficult it is. It's, it's extremely difficult. And here also, you know, Judaism, it's one of the reasons I fell in love with Judaism. I don't think there is a, a single culture on planet Earth that values learning as much as Judaism. Uh, the, the primary rite of passage, that is the event which makes a person, an, a, a, an individual, a Jewish adult, whether a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, is the act of acquiring literacy, reading. There is not a single culture on earth that tells you you will become a full member of society by learning to read. None, never been. The Spartans used to have like physical... Um, uh, wrestling events. A lot of cultures have more things that are geared towards sports that makes people adult, physical power, the emphasis on physical power. Jews emphasize something completely else, you know. Um, third, Judaism, since the beginning, it transformed the entire humanity through creating the first culture on planet Earth and in history in which this central object of organization, which everything is organized around, is a book. That's why we call them people of the book. So it's a, it's a book-based culture. It's a culture that is entirely organized around a book. And this 
of course, has consequences. Anybody who knows the Jewish culture, Jewish people, knows exactly what I'm talking about. To be to be Jewish is to be bookish, to uh, to rephrase uh, someone someone else. So Jews, you know, they, they have that emphasis on learning, and because they knew, they knew that this is the only way to get to truth. You submit yourself relentlessly for years and years, just learning, asking, debating, learning, asking, debating, and participating in the most democratic society ever created on earth that transcends time and space. You know, the, the, the democracy of writing, you know, voices from time immemorial, and you say, you know, what you have with them and voices that are not here yet will be born and come respond to you. Um, it's It's... Absolutely amazing. And unfortunately, when you're talking about what's happening in America and so many people swayed by Palestine, I think that is related to big transitions or pro or Hamas, not Palestine, Hamas. That has to do with a lot of things that are happening in the culture that for about a century, we've seen a systematic unmaking of that amazing Jewish invention. Um, that the, Our culture became less word-based less book-based, gradually more image-based, and more symbol-based. Nobody denies that America is in a political crisis great deal because of the nature of the politics that can be practiced now that are mostly symbolic. Uh, We try to upstage each other by deploying symbols, which that's actually where I come from. That's what we do. We're symbolic people. Um, And I think uh, this this... this is why it's becoming increasingly dif- difficult to try to um, convince people with arguments or facts because it, the status of argument, facts, and books are declining. And people now are more uh, receptible to vague symbolisms that immediately prep, you know, feed on their um, you know, most intimate emotions, whether fear or hate or this or that, and capitalize on them and, and get action out of that. Um, so I think uh, what's going on, and I'm afraid, and this is not to be an alarmist, I'm afraid that the rising anti-Semitism and the shift in terms of uh, attitude towards Israel, not in the entire population, but in, in some considerable segments, uh, are going to continue if the cultural processes that I just spoke about are are going to continue as well. Yeah, I agree. I think you're so articulate and you keep making me cry because you're saying things that I, I'm very proud to be Jewish. Um, I don't think it's the greatest invention in the, you know, like the best religion in the world. I believe in, I think Siddhartha is beautiful and I, I love my Christian friends and how I love Christmas. Like I go to my Christian friends for Christmas and I love Christmas music. And I love when Christina Aguilera sings, Oh, Holy night. Like, I don't care, you know, what the details were. It's, I love faith. And I I love watching, you know, a Muslim doctor work on a Jew and say, we did it. We had a moment. But to hear you say that, um, you know, we created democracy, which we did in the Sanhedrin many years ago, and like people voting for things and free speech. And you're, okay, if you're gonna, you know, be, you know, if you even today, if if a Jew or an Arab is convicted of murder in Israel and they're an Israeli citizen, they have to bring a witness that talks about how great they are. It's like part of the law, yeah. you know. Whereas in other countries, good luck, like you get, 
you get caught killing somebody or hurting somebody that's of power in a particular dynasty, there's no trial. There's no Jewish lawyer like Alan Dershowitz, say whatever you want about the guy. Like, you know, Alan Dershowitz fought for the for the Arabs to have uh, a memorial for for people that died, you know, from terrorism. It's like, and he said, I'll take the case. I'll let you have a special memorial on, on Harvard campus, but you have to also disseminate pamphlets saying how wrong this is, but I'll let, I'll let you do it. And he fought for them. It's incredible. Like the stories, like this guy that, you know, Alan Dershowitz is so hated and scorned by so many people, but like he fights for, for the rights of people to have freedom. He's not necessarily, you know, whatever. And uh, it just, it just touches me that like you, you're so brave. I know that there's people that are like, it's really it's mad not, at you for having this conversation really, with me right now. It, it's a matter of, as I said, it's a matter of truth. I, I really, I say what I think. Um, and I'm not Jewish, so I'm definitely not arguing for Jewish supremacy. I, I obviously don't think that being born a Jew makes you any different than, than anybody else. Uh, I, but I am saying what, what I truly, I truly think um, about our, our human story in general. And I feel that we need to, to do a better job telling these stories because I know that there are other young people out there who are wondering about the world and wondering about the past and wondering about the present and wondering about, about the future. Um, and I think we need we need to help them but by not giving them the right answers, but definitely helping them find the right questions. Um, and I think that's that's the that's why I love education and this is why I'm I'm passionate about um, education. Um, because, you know, I was that person before. Yeah, go ahead. I know. And I, I, I would love to read your book and I want to do a movie on you. I love doing documentaries. So maybe we could do that one day, but, um, just cause I know you don't have a, you know, all day to sit, I could sit with you for hours. Uh, but just to tie it up in a bow, what would you say to well-meaning, like I have Christian friends that have written to me in the past few weeks and they're like, why does everybody hate Israel so much? Or can you just stop with the pro-Israel stuff? Like I support you as a Jew. I just don't support Israel. And I have to educate them and go back and forth until they go, oh, it is the vegan capital of the world. It is the largest gay pride parade in the Eastern hemisphere. It is the the place for democracy in the Middle East. It is a place where Arabs can come and and live and have insurance and vote. Why? I, I guess I guess it isn't in a place of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Like they throw these words around, you know, right. and and well-meaning Jews throw them around too. Right. What would you say to all those people that so quickly just pick up a narrative and just share it and say, right. you know, forget the two-state solution, just make it Palestine again? Like, what would you say right. to that? Uh, well, they obviously need a lot of education, but I would say that. Framing things this way is the most condescending thing you can ever do to Arabs. Uh, Arabs are people, and they are capable of all the goodness that our people are capable of, and they are capable of all the evils that people are capable of. We have our problems, we have our identities, we have our, you know, villains, and we have, you know, our great philanthropists. We have, uh, we're full human society. And uh, there is a common misperception uh, that I think uh, also Judaism and the Bible and Christianity and any good religion have been trying to fight 
for an extremely, extremely long time. And, but it's really, really hard. Um, and that because just of the reality that we live in. Uh, and I think uh, the Jewish story actually makes the most important case against that misperception. Not just that, the, the story of Islam and Arabs makes also a case against that. That the fact that you are, uh, the fact that somebody is big and somebody's small, or somebody's more powerful and somebody is less powerful, and somebody has more money, and somebody has less money, doesn't really mean anything um, in terms of the the power that humanity is endowed in. Um, the the Middle East is the most ancient region of the world. Actually, if human history is a history of writing, and this is a fact, then the history of that area that we call the Middle East is the half of the entirety of human history from China to the Middle East is in a large extent, it is the foundation of the entirety of humanity. Uh, and in that history, there were a lot of big guys, uh, big, huge guys with huge muscles and armies, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, all of this. And there were small, extremely inconsequential nations of like basically nomadic tribes that had no big empires or big states. From them, the Jews, the small, you know, tribes in Canaan, and the Arabs, who are like till very recently in history, were not even literate. Where are all the empires now? They all are gone, and nothing is left but the Arabs and the Jews. And that's an amazing, amazing lesson from history. No matter how big you think you are, uh, and, the, and no matter how little you think the other guy is, that's not how it works. And we keep failing uh, to learn that lesson. So the fact that, yes, Israel, Israel is powerful, uh, that doesn't mean that they are so unequal uh, to the Palestinian that they basically can make any decision. You know, we're going to give them a state. We're going to make a one state. And everybody is talking to the Israelis. It's really condescending. It's extremely condescending to the Arabs as if they are the masters of Arab fate. And that is not true. I mean, I love Israelis, but hey, who do you think you are? You're not really the master of anybody's fate here. Uh, Arabs, Arabs are the masters of their own fate. And Arabs have to make up uh, their mind about what they want. They want to live whether one state or two state, that means that they will have to live with Israelis, other one other one way or the other. And so far, that's not widely accepted. And you can't really start talking about any of that. So Palestinians make it decisively final that they accept living with Israelis, whether it's going to be a one state or two state. Um, and that's I, I don't want to speak of, talk about this for long, but yes, talking about about the issue in that language, whether you're Jewish or Arab or American or whatever, it's very condescending to Arabs and to Israelis, really, um, and extremely just condescending. It's it's an insult to human decency in general. That's not how societies work. Palestinians may not have a state, but they are still humans and people, and what they want matters. Uh, it's not like what they want does not matter. No, they are humans. What they want absolutely matters as much as I, what I want. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think it's pretty evident that Arabs are the masters of their own fate. When I see a protest, not peaceful, in New York City, in LA, in Baltimore, 
in South Florida where they're holding signs that say rape the daughters and kill the mothers. It's like, I've never seen a Jewish protest or an Israeli peace fair where I've seen a sign like that. Um, And so when I show people these images, they're like, oh, that's only a few people. I'm like, maybe, but I saw it. And then I saw rocket, like, um, uh, what do you call it? Molotov cocktail and people died from it, or there was a stabbing, you know, in New York and in Baltimore and LA, like these are, these things are starting to happen and people are turning their head and and Jewish celebrities are not speaking out because they're, they, they're comfortable and they don't, they don't want to lose their jobs. And it's like, right. Oh my God, 1935 vibes, you know, Germany, like, how is this happening? And I, I'm making this podcast today because I have to, this is not something I enjoy talking about because I really believe in peace so much and salam, shalom together. Shalom doesn't mean, and salam is the same, it's the same, uh, it, it, you know, the sheen, it, it's, me, you, and God in the middle. And when I can see the godliness in you and you can see the godliness in me, there is peace. And it doesn't mean zip your lip and be quiet and put your head down and don't talk woman or Arab or Jew. Don't talk. No, it means you both share and you you share from your heart and you open it up and you talk. And it's like, I can see just like I saw the Palestinians and Jews making that big peace chain around the, you know, the... Um, old city of Jerusalem on the days of the ceasefire. It's like, that gave me so much hope that we are going to have the the next generation that really cares about all lives matter. Like they're going to rise up, but we have to figure out how to get the right history out, or at least going forward, the right sentiments that doesn't demean the Palestinian group that understands what Hamas is actually doing to their own people. Um, because if we don't get that, it's just, it's history is going to repeat itself. And we're going it, to, it's, you know, we, we came to the Oslo Accords or six times we tried to make a two state solution and every time. So, so just to wrap up, what do you say to people who fundamentally want all of the land of Israel and to call it Palestine. How, 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 what would you say to your Muslim family? Like, we have to figure this out. Uh, I'd say that you have to learn to share. You can't have, <laughs> you, you can't have everything. Um, and this is really, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of this at, at the core of this, um, which is kind of the narcissistic tyrant in all of, in all of us. I believe that that narcissistic tyrant is inside every one of us. And we try to deal with it all the time by trying to be better people. Uh, but, you know, it comes out, you know, sometimes it comes out to me when I, you know, in me, I, I see it when I get angry over something that really not worth it. And then I catch myself, what are, why are you, does it really matter? Um, and I think this is really at the heart of this. It's the idea of sharing and not canceling each other. Um, sadly, as I said, uh, I can't say, well, everybody is equally wrong and everybody's equally. I don't think that's true. I'm an Arab. You know, I've learned Hebrew. I got very close to Israelis and Jews in general. Um, Palestinians and Arabs in general have a lot of work to do. Till now, and it's, it's heartbreaking to, to think about this, the most prominent Palestinian poet, anybody familiar with the Palestinian know the name. His name is Mahmoud Darwish. He was an Israeli citizen, but, you know, he became the national poet of, of the Palestinians. 
Um, and he's a brilliant poet, but you know, being pr brilliant or intelligent doesn't make you a good person. Uh, throughout our human history, we have amazing authors and philosophers that created some of the most evil ideas in humanity. And he is truly, it's, he's a, he's a, he is the Palestinian icon. And he has this very famous poetry that all Palestinians love and know. A um, couple of verses that say, this land has no room for two identities. We are the ones remaining and they are the ones passing. It's either us or either us. I don't think any solution is possible before you have a significant segment of the Palestinian population looking at this and saying, you know what? His poetry is powerful and beautiful, but it's not good. And we don't want to this poetry to represent us. And often I think, and this story, I think God tried to teach it to people in the Bible so many times. Many times the only way forward is to give up that which you value the most. And I think the Palestinians need to give up some of that, which they value the most. The national image that they built to themselves in the past 50 years or so, which includes uh, people like that poet. Um, and once that happens, once the Palestinians give that up, and, and honestly, in themselves, in, in their inner selves, accept to share on equal footings, life with Israelis side by side, I don't think that we'll see a peaceful end to this. Uh, but hopefully this happens sooner than later. I don't Amen. Wanna... It's boggling. Look, we could talk about this for hours. You're amazing. You are a Thank hero. You. You're my personal hero. I haven't been able to sleep because so many of my well-meaning Muslim, very super left-wing liberal Jewish friends, I'm a moderate, but like, you know, friends. And then I have Christian friends also sending me like, could you just stop with the whole, like, do you care? And when I write back to them, they're like, oh, I didn't know that that's happening. And oh, why aren't, why isn't this on the news? And why is this so, and why did Biden say that, you know, we're having an anti-Semitism problem? It's like, but then I see you and you just give me so much in Hebrew, we say imuna, like faith that in humankind that, you know, I am for Palestinian rights. I want the Palestinians to have the same freedoms that I have. I want them to have healthcare. I want them to be able to speak their voice. I, I want all Arabs, all Arab females, all whoever identifies as whatever they want to identify with. I'm for all humans, all innocent humans to have a life that is free. Um, and I want to free people from tyranny. And so, you know, I, I've been there. I've been, I've been to the Middle East. I've, I've been in um, territories that are under really scary ruling. And it is not fun to walk down the street in those places. Um, and I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm very excited about Egypt because I just heard what's happening with Egypt uh, and, and, and wanting to support Israel. And um, I, I'm so, you, you have completely made me have faith again in humankind. I was, I, you know, I can never lose faith in humankind, but the last few days have been really rocky for me. So I just, I just want to thank you so much. And I want to give you a big blessing that your voice is lifted to the heights and you are able to, to get people to ask the critical question and earn the real truth in the world, whatever that is. We all, we all know what, I can't even give you like the dates and here's the book to read. We have, like you said, it's, you said the word submit. I'm going to use another word, surrender. 
Because the last thing you said to me yesterday, and this is when I said we have to get on the podcast, you said, Barb, it's not worth talking to this guy because if anyone were to believe what you just sent me, you actually have to choose it because anyone would would see that this is not true information. And so I I bless you that that you being so enlightened talk about enlightenment that that people will see you and it's so palpable your the way you carry yourself and how you speak about humankind will actually infiltrate and and get people to say you know what i'm going to choose to look through the boring history and see like what's really up and not just follow this celebrity who's dating somebody that knew someone that sent them yeah. this text i i hope so i hope thank you barbara this was please say uh, amen amazing. Amen. Okay. I really hope that God gives you a platform to speak on because you're making me cry. My my heart is in Hebrew. I'm felling. Like, I'm just so grateful to know you. you. You're so articulate too. Thank you, I appreciate it. This was amazing. Thank you very much. I hope people people enjoy uh, watching this. Yeah, me too. God bless you. And thank you so very much. And uh, I hope this is not the last time we speak. I hope we speak many, many more times. And Hussein is absolutely right. You can find this entire podcast episode on YouTube. Just go to Barbara Heller, Artist and Educator, my YouTube channel, and you will find it under episode 28 of C1 Beautiful Soul on the C1 Beautiful Soul playlist for the podcast. Here are some golden nuggets of wisdom from this episode. People underestimate the anti-Semitism shown to small children in Arab countries through books, media, films, television shows, especially when Jews are playing the villain in every single story. Anti-Semitism is destructive to all nations, not just to the Jews. When Hussein is confronted with a fundamental belief difference within his religion versus something else, he will say, hmm, now why did my holy book, the Quran, say that? And he goes back and he tries to find the possibility of why things are different as opposed to trying to prove that the fundamental belief he grew up with was the only one. When it comes to fundamental belief differences, the difficulty really is in human behavior. Hussein gives two reasons for this. Number one, people believe no matter what came before me, my life is when humanity started. Nothing really came before me because I can't see it. Number two, confusing what's normative with what's natural. Both of these issues make it very difficult to make changes in history or even sometimes historical evidence, especially when it's popular. Remember, for hundreds of years, certain groups in Europe, especially Eastern Europe, believed that Jewish people drank blood from others. It was simply not true, but because there were more of them believing it than there were Jews trying to defend it, people believed it and pass that down to others. I once had someone come up to me in the South and say, you're Jewish, where are your horns? Because her grandmother, who had learned from her grandmother and her grandmother all the way up to, I guess, wherever they were from, told them that Jewish people had horns coming out of their head. It's a false belief, but so many people believed it that it became their truth. Most people are not willing or unable to do the very hard work of learning about their origins and questioning some of the history that may not make sense. And why would you want to spend any time refuting your own fundamental beliefs, especially when they're so close to your heart, and it could mean condemning your own parents or grandparents whom you love so much and respect so much? 
especially if you've been taught since a young age that you and your people could actually take over the whole world. Hussein says the reason why so many people are swayed by Hamas or other terrorist organizations has a lot to do with how our culture is learning how to learn. We've slowly started to see an unmaking of study culture, book culture, sitting and thinking and reading versus very quick videos with images and symbols that go in through the eye, the optics, and sometimes through the ears. We are becoming a dangerously symbol-based, fear-based society. Fear first, think, if at all, second. Anti-Semitism will continue the less we critically think about what's going on and our history and fundamental beliefs. But he says, don't be frightened. Just because someone has more numbers in population does not mean that they're more powerful or will even stick around. Don't give in to that fear because of all the empires that came before us, Greek, Roman, and ultimately, until we learn to share the land of Israel, we can't have everything. We will only continue to fight and hurt one another. We have to accept that we are being called to share this beautiful holy land, and until we all agree on that and respect one another and really work hard to love and care for one another as if we were all one big beautiful soul, unfortunately, we may see the continuation of not just anti-Semitism, but anti-democracy, anti-freedom. May Hussein's courage give you the courage and the strength to think about what your fundamental beliefs are and ask the critical questions, which, if any, parts of this fundamental belief system I'm a part of is damaging to perhaps another human being. Sit up for a moment. Close your eyes, put your shoulders back, take a deep breath. And from your heart, imagine sending love and light, that's it, to every single soul on this entire planet and beyond. And feel that love and light come right back to your heart. Just send out beautiful energy and feel it coming back. It begins with you and me. And if we really, really believe that there is someone bigger than all of us who created all of us for good reason, we will get through this very tragic, difficult chapter. Let's share this beautiful world. Let's see one another as one big, bright, beautiful soul. Thank you so much for being here. Please share this episode with someone who you care about. Salam, shalom. May we all only know inner and outer peace. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode can inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always.